Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And it is my great treat to have with us today, April Jones. She is the author of No Mess, No Message. And I got to admit, the first time I read that title, I thought she was like saying No Mas. I thought it was Spanish. So that was my fault that I totally missed that. But it's No Mess, No Message. And she's the owner of the Drifted Drum Company. And she does these great events called No Pity Party. And I can promise you that there will be no pity party here today on the Intentional Encourager podcast with April Jones in the house. April, how are you today? Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's really a pleasure. Uh, listen, for those of you that will watch this on video, the pleasure is all mine because the, the pretty factor has gone infinitely <laughs> through the ceiling. You know, look at, look at side by side, look at me, look at her, look at me, look at her. But no, it is a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me today. You know, I ask this question of everybody because as we record this in the midst of COVID-19 and things like that, and you live outside of Nashville, so everything is different in different places. What's the biggest thing that you have learned through this pandemic, maybe about yourself or about other people and then you go because of this pandemic I, I have figured this out what, what's that been for you um I would say uh I didn't really I think in the last couple of years I've really taken time to try to reprioritize a lot of things a little bit um and so I've been intentional about that but I think that this year really did make me realize how much uh busy stuff like just extra stuff and layers that we have in our life um and so as we are forced to trim some of that away um i think everyone has reacted a little differently to that and i think um your kind of underlying foundation of what your perspectives are of your current situations or your relationships or the way you communicate with others uh, really kind of became amplified. Mm -hmm. um, for some, that was a good thing. And for some, I think that's been a bad thing. And I think for our culture overall, we've seen that as a roller coaster in our country um, for this in entire year. And it, just to kind of watch it play out has been um, surprising. But it's also, I think, grown my relationship even more you know with God having this be part of our our journey all of our journey um it's made me realize how important unity is trusting God just relationship and um honestly um just empathy too right and I always talk about how empathy is important but I think this year it just really has has brought it to a new level. So I think I've learned a lot through this pandemic for sure, but definitely still grateful. Well, and again, I, I think people 
when they look at situations and circumstances, they go, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. And we go out in public, we have to wear a mask. And, and it feels like April that all these things start piling on people. And then what we talked about a minute ago, they start to have their own pity party because they, they start to think, well, you know, if we hadn't had this pandemic, I'd be doing this. And I've had to cancel a trip and, and things like that. How do people avoid getting to the point where they look and they go, I'm more focused on how I'm feeling than, than actually what's going on around me? Because if you look at what's going on around you, you could say, well, hey, we're still blessed. We're still, we've still got a lot of things going on. How do people avoid pity parties in the midst of a pandemic? I, I know I put the peas together and it's like, you know, it's like the alliteration, but, but really how do we avoid the pity party inside the pandemic? Yeah, I, um, I think self-analysis is super, super important and like taking a pulse on where you're personal emotional intelligence is to be honest and um if you find that you are overwhelmed and depressed and you know feeling isolated and sensitive then it's time to take some action and um try to figure out okay well yes i'm being faced with a lot of things that i can't control right now but there's a lot of things that i can control and so what do i do about that and I think that positivity is um, not just a state of being, but it's an intentional exercise. You lost me when you said intelligence, because I, I was just like, you know, I, I don't possess a great deal of that. So, you know, when you said emotional intelligence, I was just like, nah, she can't be talking about somebody <laughs> like me, you know, that has to, you know, has to have a phone to find his way anywhere but but no I, I think you're right I think a lot of times you know people are so busy doing things and being being just immersed in going to work and if they have kids you know being involved in sports and extracurricular activities and we fill our days up with so much stuff that at night it's just maybe it's it's collapsing as your head hits the pillow and not really thinking about now, okay, am I doing okay? You know, yeah. is everything inside as good as it could be emotionally? Because when we, when we, I think a lot of times too, you've got teenage kids. I have a, a, a soon to be 20 year old. You're so caught up in what your kids are doing and what your family's doing and running here and running there and doing this and doing that that a lot of times you push those emotional things to the side and you just go, okay, I'll deal with that later. Well, the pandemic is when, when we first all got quarantined and everybody would, you know, you're going to die if you left the house, people were, were starting to think about that stuff. I want you to go a little deeper there with emotional intelligence. And, you know, April, when, 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 if somebody's listening to this conversation between you and I, and they say, look, I, I really have, I've really had to, to really face some things I haven't had to face before. Walk me through a lot of times what you think that looks like for somebody that hasn't had to have those hard emotional conversations internally with themselves before. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I touch about this in my book um, because I, I think it's different now because maybe we're all, you know, we're all kind of dealing with un unexpected adversity. Um, but I think that um, in general, we all face it just at different times and the types mm -hmm. of adversity look a little bit different, right? So um, it's very, I, I see it being um, very typical for people to tend to completely internalize where they're just, you know, they silo themselves off. They feel like communication is not important if they feel like there aren't others that can help their situation. Um, so I think that's a natural response. And um, so I feel like one of the most important things is self-analysis. It's okay to, you have to give yourself some grace to feel the way that you're feeling. And then you have to, you have to interpret, okay, out of all of this, all this, all of this mess, <laughs> out of all this mess, um, what can I, what, what am I okay with? What am I not okay with? What can I um, take action toward helping? Mm -hmm. what is out of my control. So for example, you know, if we think about my situation that I share in my book personally as being one of the biggest adversities I faced, it has been childhood cancer um, when I was in grad school and my son was two. And in a situation like that, there are definitely things that you can and cannot control. Couldn't control the fact that he had cancer. I couldn't control how he would respond to therapy or the side effects or any of that stuff, um, or that it was happening, you know, it was, it was, it was going to happen and I couldn't stop that. Mm -hmm. But um, what I could control is, you know, I could spend as many moments with him, comforting him, um, listening to him, trying to understand what he was going through. I could figure out, um, you know, what could I, control in my personal situation that made me feel better, more in control. And that was, you know, continuing to push through school. And that might not have been the right, you know, just because that's what was right for me doesn't mean that's what's right for everyone. So you kind of have to really figure out, um, you have to know yourself, you, you know, basically. I mean, if you know yourself when you're not in the middle of chaos and adversity, then you're going to know a little bit more how to respond when you are in that. So when, and, and we'll, we'll jump, we're going to jump ahead. I, I want to continue here, but we'll, we'll go back and, and, and tell more of that story. But here's a, here's a question that I had kind of top of mind is I think a lot of people, April will look at this pandemic and they'll go, okay, we've been doing this since the middle of March. And there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. But there is an other side to this thing. There's always an, uh, the other side of whatever it is in life we go through. When you're in the middle of that and you're walking, is it hard or was it hard in your situation with your son to see the other side? Yeah, I think that... Um... It's always our tendency, I think, you know, to imagine 
the different outcomes that could play out, right? The different scenarios. Um, so, you know, if, if you try to anticipate what it looks like afterwards, sometimes it can help you deal with what it looks like in your situation at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for the pandemic, I would say that um, we, we have to figure out what can we learn right now mm-hmm. and what we're dealing with that will make us stronger once things hopefully start to normalize again. And, you know, for some of us, it's financial. For some of us, it's being intentional with our time management, um, intentional with our our relationships, trimming out the layers that, of of, uh, waste um, within our, the things that waste our energy, things that waste our time, you know, things that deplete our positivity. So, um, you know, for me, when I was in the middle of our situation, um, obviously it was over. It was it was very overwhelming. But as I thought about what the potential options are, obviously the scariest one was that you know Tyler might pass away, mm-hmm. and um, you know so. But it was actually in that that uh, is where I figured out how to give get release right so um i shared my book about a friend of ours who was very supportive and close to us during that time um who had lost their son um just a couple of years before and he was a similar age as tyler who's also a toddler and they were incredibly strong and spiritual and supportive And I thought, if the worst thing that happens, the biggest thing that I'm scared of in all of this happened to them, and they're still who they are today, then there's hope for me. And I think that a lot of us need a success story to be hopeful sometimes, that the absolute worst thing could happen, and you could still have hope. And I think that's how we gain credibility in our crisis, right? So sometimes it's that that will help others relate to us not the education we have, not the anything we've accomplished, but just the fact that we've gotten through something and have been able to move on. Yeah, that's a great point. I want you to take me through your story because you've got an interesting journey. And again, you know, we'll weave that that part of the conversation about your son but I want to I want to really dive into you and your life and and how you got from point A to point B because everybody has a life story that that makes them who they are and and whether it's it's a circumstance or you know in your case with your son um, but I want you to tell me your life tell the audience your life story start as far back as you want to go and how you got from point A to point B. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in West Tennessee. So, you know, humble upbringing. Um, My mom and dad got a divorce, I guess, you know, around, oh, elementary, maybe right before junior high. And um, so, you know, essentially kind of a single parent atmosphere during my teenage years. Um. And then I 
really, I felt like I, I really needed some stability. I, you know, was trying to determine like who I was supposed to be or, you know, like I made good grades, but, and then I cheered for a while. And then, you know, I also like would do things I, you know, wasn't supposed to do. I would party and, you know, I, I didn't know who I was supposed to be or what was going to happen. I, I couldn't see my future in that kind of small town environment. Um, I felt very, um, I don't know, very judged, I guess. Um, maybe, and maybe I wasn't being judged. Maybe I was just being insecure. Um, but I, uh, I ended up starting to date this guy. Um, he was th just three years, he was three years older than me, but I was 16 and he was 19. And luckily he didn't want to stay there either. <laughs> and, um, and I just kind of saw like this opportunity, like he was always very supportive. He was always, um, you know, encouraging of me and um, reminding me like what my talents were and believing in me. And so, um, so we, we stuck together for a little while and I actually graduated high school early and went to college and um, I did a double major in chemistry and biology and I wanted to cure cancer. That was my goal. Like I wanted to, um, it sounded like the best thing that you could do. I really didn't know what that meant at the time, but it sounded like the best thing you could possibly make up to do. So um, I, I majored in chemistry and biology and I did an internship for a summer at St. Jude and, um, and, and then. Um, did you go to I school in the Memphis area? Did you end up going to school in the Memphis area where St. Jude is? I did. Well, I went to Union in undergrad, and so I ended up getting married. Um, and then, and a month a month later, um, I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> so it was my well, it was technically it was two months later, but it was um, it was like my third year, or well, I was it was my second year. I was on I was due to finish my degree in three years, so it was my second year in. I was, you know, ambitious, ready to apply for, for med school. And then I found out I was pregnant. So I still did the internship at St. Jude. And I, um, I realized that, you know, um, I, even though I was going to be a mom, I could still pursue like whatever I, I was still going to, I, I was still in, you know, I, I wanted to be a role model. I didn't just, at that point, I was like, okay, well, I just have to adjust my plans, but it doesn't mean I have to cancel them. And, I have to, uh, I have to ask you this, because I've got to, I got to park here for just a minute. Yeah. You're doing an internship at St. Jude's. What was the biggest thing that you learned from your time there at St. Jude's? Because you're around, and I don't think it's really an accident as things no. would happen later in life that you had an internship at St. Jude's when St. Jude's is world renowned for, for helping children that are facing incredibly difficult situations and their parents are going through those things. When you were there and obviously you, you had no idea what was going to happen later in life to you, but what was the biggest thing that you learned from that time interning at St. Jude's? So probably two things. Um, I was working in 
research. So I was pregnant and um, I was, I'm confident the only professional oncology student there that was pregnant. <laughs> and um, there, I think there were maybe 50 of us in the program that year or less out of, you know, like the thousands of people who applied all over the country. And I was thankful that I got that opportunity and I was like, you know, I might be pregnant, but I'm going anyway. So I was in the lab every day. And um, the first thing I learned was that you don't control research. <laughs> you have good ideas and, you know, you might be onto something, but, you know, truly it's real science is that you don't control the science and you play it out and see how it goes. And sometimes it works out for you and sometimes it doesn't. And then that's how you plan your next move, right? So I by nature in my career, you've seen, you'll see that I had a lot of administration and, um, you know, management roles. And that's because <laughs> I, I appreciate being able to control facets of my environment. And so that was a difficult job for me. <laughs> um, although I loved it. I mean, I was curious about everything and I felt like I was being contributive to a larger purpose, but it was, yeah, it was definitely not, you can't control anything that happens in the lab really, except for, you know, certain things, but you can't control the outcome. So then um, the other thing obviously was that um, we would eat lunch in the cafeteria and you're surrounded by patients. And, you know, so even though we worked in the research wing, there's only one cafeteria. So, you know, you saw the patients and the parents and I came from a small town. I was very sheltered from all of that. I didn't know any kids at the time that had had cancer. And um, I, I remember sitting at lunch one day and telling my friend Stephanie, who was in the program with me, it, it, this could happen to anybody. Like everyone is here. There's like every, every nationality, every ethnicity, every religion, old, young, everyone is here. And um, so, it was, I, I, that was very, um, I don't know, that was just, just very shocking. Um, but I do think it gave me a sense of, it was my first experience to really have a sense of, you know, empathy when it come, came to healthcare, mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. I hadn't been exposed to any of that. So I do believe that it helped me. However, you know, I could have never imagined, you know, obviously just because I said, this could happen to anybody. I still didn't appreciate the fact that it could happen to me. And, um, you know, so it was, it was somewhat ironic, painful irony that, you know, when I found myself in that cafeteria as a mom very shortly after. Do you think yeah. that you ever looked back and, and said to yourself, I remember being here and eating lunch two, three, four, whatever, how many years later, did you ever think to yourself, boy, I wish I could, because I've done that at times. And here's where I'm going with this thought is I have said to myself now at 48, boy, I wish I could go back to me at 30 when my son was two or 28 when my son was born, put my arm around myself and go buckle up big boy. It's about to get interesting. 
you know, or go to certain points in my life, go back in time now as I am now and, and put my arm around myself and go, hey, look, here's what you need to do because this is how it's going to turn out. And trust me, it'll be okay. Did you find yourself going back when you were there with your son, going back to that time, sitting there with your friend and recalling those same feelings and thoughts that you had then? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you wish that you had some foreshadowing. It hit, it, it hits like a, you know, like a hurricane when it comes sometimes with the, when you, especially when it's a, a life-threatening diagnosis, I think. And, um, so, but I, um, you know, actually Tyler came, um, almost eight weeks early. So I, I didn't, I think now I look back and I understand that that gave me a greater appreciation for him and the importance of him and being a mom because at you know at at just turning 20 it wasn't like the most excited I mean I was I I was excited in the little things but like I just thought of him as another thing that I had to do kind of like it was another job Um, and I didn't quite as much appreciate, um, the gift that it was to be, to be becoming a mom. And, um, so when he came early, that really all changed that for sure. And so I think that being able to, um, really appreciate his, him being healthy and being, getting the opportunity to be a mom and just like how he changed my life in a positive way, um, that really prepared me, um, I think, mentally. You're never prepared mentally for a cancer diagnosis, but it helped me um, really not, like, understand the importance of him and just, mm-hmm. you know, make him my top priority when, you know, like, school was still a priority. I was still a priority, but he was my first priority, and I think um, gaining that appreciation early on made it a little bit easier to weather because we'd already dealt with some health issues. We'd already dealt with, you know, like unexpected challenges. Um, so this was just at a greater, it was at a much greater scale. Let's talk about that now, because again, and I, and I'm a dad of a premium. Our son was born five weeks early. And so you understand that, you know, you may spend a little time in the hospital and, and this and that. And um, now premature babies are, are born every day and they're healthy and they do well and everything's good. Um, but when did you guys notice that something was wrong? He was two, your son Tyler was two when he was first diagnosed. What were some of the signs that you guys noticed that something's really, like something's really wrong here? It was weird because Tyler had a solid tumor. So, um, and it was actually in his right foot. So it was um, really an overnight experience. Um, He was a healthy 
20 month toddler one day and then he was playing in the sprinkler and he stepped on the sprinkler and like kind of bruised his foot and had an abrasion and then the next week I'm noticing that well that it was still puffy and so I like squeezed it and there were there was a knot in his foot and so that was kind of like the beginning of the cascade and you're the clinical side of you because you do you have some medical background at this point you you've gotten you've done you've been done research at St. Jude's you you've got a pretty solid medical footing behind you and underneath you when you noticed this knot on his foot what did the did the mom instinct kick in or did the what did the medical instinct kick in well, at first, I mean, at first it was medical, which it, it's funny because as a 22 year old, I like I had worked at the hospital, but I did phlebotomy. So that was pretty straightforward. Um, I had worked at St. Jude, but I was in the structural biology lab. So it was very clinical. I did not see or very um preclinical. So I didn't see any patients or anything like that. And then um, when uh, I was, so I was in my second year of pharmacy school, but it was just starting, like we found his tumor in August. So I was just starting a new semester. So the first year, you know, it's just really all of your, a lot of your basics. But um, when we got the, the diagnosis for cancer, I was, we were actually studying oncology at the time. Um, and it was, um, I, I thought maybe it was a cyst. Like that was my first gut reaction. It's like, okay, well, he, he hurt himself. It could have caused inflammation. Maybe he had fluid buildup. Like maybe this, this is a cyst. So I called the pediatrician and I was just talking through the scenario with her and she, had me bring him in. He was due for shots anyway. So we made an appointment a couple of days later. And, you know, she was like, it could be, you know, and she was like, to be honest, I mean, she was a new mom too. She was, um, I think she was probably early 30s and she'd just taken over the practice. And she said, you know, I don't know, but we only get one set of feet. Babies get one set of feet for the last, the rest of their lives. So we'll, we'll be thorough. So we, scheduled and we did an x-ray and you couldn't see anything and then we scheduled the MRI and it just appeared like magic so that you know it was at first it was definitely like I wanted to rationalize the symptoms you know what could it be and then after that it was I, I don't think I was ever in breakout mode I was always just trying to like say okay well this is what we have to deal with so now what do we do this is what we have to deal with now what do we do um because it's the only way I think I could have gotten through it um because of my personality taking it you know okay this is we have to go here and we have to do this and we have to do that and and, and, and do you think that was helpful for you to keep it very structured and go A, B, C, D, E, F steps along the way? Because again, I'm more emotionally wired. I, you know, logical things. I'm like, yeah, yeah, 
whatever. More, some people, my wife is more process oriented, task oriented, things like that. Do you think it helped you being task oriented to keep you on track with everything else? Starting pharmacy school, you know, you're you're married less than two years, you know, less than three years. You have you have a child. Did it help you being task oriented and process oriented? It did, and I'm I'm definitely not going to criticize myself for the way that I processed it all. However, I will say that I wish that I had given myself more ability to just breathe, you know, to just feel what I felt, not feel bad about it. But I felt like being strong, like being strong was important because I couldn't fall apart because, you know, I still had to be mom and I still had to do all this other stuff. And and that was the part that I could control. So it, it made me feel less out of control in the situation. Do you, do, you think, do you think for yourself, because I'm thinking about people like that, and in those moments that they're real, and, and, you, and you said, you know, I, I was doing all this and didn't really take time to breathe and things like that. Do you feel like in those moments that if you would have, sat down with a cup of coffee, put your feet up and really reflected that you would have probably lost it. And maybe as the best. definitely afraid that I would fall apart for sure. Yeah, be, because in the, in April, the reason that I asked that is, and, and I want to, again, I'm not apologizing for this conversation being real and authentic is that a lot of people are like that in the sense of, I, I stay busy and I plow through because if I sat down and really grasped the, the, the whole universe of, of what we're in, in, in that moment, mm -hmm. I would fall apart. Like I, I have that mechanism sometimes, like there are sometimes I'm like, yeah, you know, tell me a joke. Otherwise I would sit over here and cry for an hour. Yeah, you know, I it's better for me in 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 me emotionally. It's better for me to laugh than cry because if I cried, I probably wouldn't stop. I yeah. would tap into that part of. What, did you? I mean, did you have days where you broke down and said, "Why is this happening to me with everything I have going on? Why are we going through this?" I I do share. Um, I do share in my book that there was um, two instances that really stood out to me and. One was when my friends were asking me in the hallway at school, like for an update about how everything was, was going. We just gotten the dying. Well, we just found out that it was cancer. And I, you know, said, well, you know, like when I knew, you know, when I knew that it was that we had, a, you know, something going on. Um, oh, and we had a misdiagnosis too. So I was like, when I knew that we had like something going on, then I, I thought, okay, well, as long as it's, you know, as long as it's nothing serious, and then we had to have surgery, and I was like, and then once we had surgery, I was like, well, as long as it's not cancer, and then it wasn't cancer, and then they came back and said, well, it actually is, and then I was like, so what now? Like, I just was like, how do I rationalize, like, how do I see the positive in the situation? Because, like, I can, I could deal with that, I could deal with that, but I don't know that I can deal with this, and so I just remember crying in the hallway, like, with my hands over my face, like, I just can't do this, you know, it was like one of those moments where I was like, 
yes, like I can't, I can't really just talk about this or process what's happening because it's too hard. Um, I can deal with all this other stuff and the, and I can go through the motions, but I can't deal with my feelings right now because it's just not, I just, I can't do it. And so, and then, um, there was another time where, you know, we, I just, we knew that when the chemotherapy wasn't working and, um, and so I just, I just remember just like allowing myself to just really break down, um, at one point. And I remember probably, you know, just 20 minutes maybe of just like, just really just letting myself just cry and, um, and just acknowledge that what was happening was like, it was okay to not be okay. And, um, and I think that now, like, it took me years to acknowledge that what we went through was hard. Like for the longest time, I just said, oh, you know, we got through it. It's okay. Like, no, it was, it was a bad situation, but, um, but you know, we're, we're fine. And I think that it took me, you know, it really did take me years to, to acknowledge that what we went through was painful and it was significant. And, um, and I wish that I had allowed myself more moments. I, I do think it would have been, I powered through that, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think that it was the best way or think that everyone should be that way because now after years in healthcare, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist, but I do mm -hmm. think that in dealing with a lot of people and with a lot of patients and a lot of other cancer moms, I think that, um, the more that you suppress those feelings and don't allow yourself to deal with them, the more you're at risk for more depression or suicidal thoughts or being overwhelmed. And I think that for me, for me, what happened is over time, I had to for forgive, I had, to, honestly, I had to for forgive God, like those angry feelings that I, I felt and I had to just come to terms with everything that happened and see that, you know, like I had to start building a relationship with God and that's what made me stronger and that's what helped me through. And, um, and the I Lord don't know. Lord bless you and your family. Yeah. You know, and that's, that is so but important. I thought that. I thought, right. I mean, yeah. it was one of the things that I, that I questioned, you know, at the time, like, um, because and it's very natural to do that because a lot of people say, well, God, you did this or God, why did you do this? You know, and, and thinking to yourself, okay, well, I didn't do this. So it had to be God and God, you know, you could have prevented this if you would have just, you know, obviously I did something wrong. Why, why would you do? I think what you just said there was so powerful in you had to forgive God because we think of forgiveness is that God forgives us. And he does all the time when we make mistakes, plenty of them. I'm raising my hand first, but to forgive God and say, it wasn't your fault. You allowed this for whatever reason to come into our lives. We don't know it yet, but you do. And so I, 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 I'm, I forgive you for, for, you know, and I want to make that relationship better. I've got to ask this and I didn't mean to jump in there, but that was the, 
Well, it's like, you know, you get a thought in your head. It's like, I, you know, at my age, you just kind of tend to forget it. Like, oh my goodness. But how was your husband through all this? Because I know how I would be as a dad. I know how my wife would be as a mom. And I've been, I've been in those situations, you know, where my sons had to have surgeries and things like that. And you, you know, you, you gotta be strong for your wife and strong. How, how did your husband deal with all that? Well, I mean, you know, we were both pretty young. If you think about it, you know, I was 22 um, or almost 22. He was 25 and um, we were, you know, we were still trying to figure out how to be grownups, I think, partly, and how to be normal, you know, parents of a normal kid, much less a sick kid, right? And, and the reason I ask that is because you mentioned when you guys were dating that he was supportive and he pushed, you know, you, you know, you, you got, you know, pushing you for your dreams and things like that. And now you guys are all in on a situation that's, that's life altering. I mean, you think being parents life altering, now you've really got a situation that's life altering. So I'm just curious there, you know, did that, mm -hmm. did, did he continue to support you in the same way? Yes. I, I think that we, there were a lot of things that we, it, it was kind of nice because there were a lot of things that we didn't really talk about. Like we just agreed to be like we just kind of knew we were on the same page and I didn't have to talk about my feelings and I didn't expect him to talk about his feelings and we just kind of knew that we were having to deal with this together and it sucked and that we were going to just try to be as positive and loving to Tyler as we possibly could and get through each day and I think we just tried to show each other a little grace and that you know if the laundry wasn't done we did it together we didn't feel like that, like cooking dinner. Then he picked up takeout on the way home from the police department. I mean, it was just, you know, it's just one of those things where we tried to be considerate of each other and just didn't expect, you know, we just didn't try to expect too much. Like we just, we both knew we were going through something hard and we just tried to be there for each other the best that we could. And, you know, and it was really helpful to me, like there were a lot of times where he would um, be able to take off and come with me whenever he got chemotherapy or whenever he had to be inpatient. Um, the police department was amazing and they donated a lot of sick time. And so I definitely never at any point felt like I was doing it completely on my own. Wow. So you get the misdiagnosis that, that Tyler, you thought, didn't have cancer and, and they said oh yeah we now he does and we fast forward to where the chemotherapy is not working what what happened next in in that was a real like oh man this is who this is this is the next hurdle that god has put in our path for whatever reason um your son i, I believe your son lost lost his foot did he not yes so, um, you know, the sad thing about childhood cancer is that um, there's not always a lot of options at progression. And so um, Tyler's tumor was not necessarily characteristic. And, you know, if you think about back then, that was 
let's see, that was probably 16 years ago. So he, you know, there's been, there have been a lot of advances in, you know, like targeted therapies or, or genomic testing, but um, to identify possible therapies, but. Hey, with the way things are going today, we could talk about back then as being like, remember in October of 2019? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So much, I mean, it's such a rapidly evolving area. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we really only had one chemotherapy regimen that we were offered as being potentially effective. And it's, it was kind of the one that they had used for infantile fibrosarcoma. And so we tried it. And then we did not get the response that we hoped for. So it was kind of like, okay, well, what do we do now? So they presented us with a couple of options, you know, and just kind of went through the pros and the cons. Um, one of them was to like take, take the tumor out again, but then, you know, the, his foot was so small, you couldn't really get good margins. So they would install like radiation rods and he would get radiation. Um, and then, and hopefully that would kill off any of the remaining uh, cells. Then the other option um, was, you know, amputation. And then, you know, so the, the disadvantages obviously is that with a solid tumor, if any of those cells had, had not died from radiation and they metastasized, well, you only had one chemotherapy regimen for us to try and it didn't work. So like, we're going to end up with it somewhere else in the body, most likely the lungs or the brain. And then it's, it's not going to respond. Like that's a really crappy option. And then also radiation could cause a lot of, um, you know, it could cause burning, it could cause pain. Um, you know, back then too, I don't think there were as many options for radiation, you know, like now they have beads or they have focalized um, local radiation, you know, so basically it just didn't seem like a good scenario for us. And then we would always have that fear, right? And I think that for us, even though amputation seemed incredibly scary and we didn't know any other kids with amputations at the time, it just seemed like, well, at least we might be dealing with a new issue that will last the rest of his life, but hope at least it's not going to kill him is our hope. So that's, how we made that decision and obviously the amputation worked i mean if that's a, a good term yes. to use yes. is that it worked as you're going through to through pharmacy school and you're pursuing your farm d degree when they were talking to you about the different chemo options and things like that were you in your mind thinking okay how is this drug going to react in his body did you ever turn that part of your brain on while you were having these discussions with doctors? It's a, that's a really interesting question and a great question um, because we try, we try to ask good <laughs> questions. It's um, I think that it gave me, okay. So when you're going through school and you, or even like if you're watching a commercial about a new drug, right. And you, hear the disclaimer at the end, it can cause nausea and vomiting, it can cause diarrhea, it can cause headaches, you know, like you, you see this laundry list. And I think we equate it to, we equate it to whatever symptoms similar to that we've experienced before, right? You don't like, know how like, many times I've had to answer questions from family members being, being associated with that industry and going, listen, 
if one person got that side effect, the FDA makes you listed as a side effect for that particular drug. Like it's not going to rip your hair out. I promise you this drug is not going to rip you. You know, they're like, Oh, side effects might be, you know, you'll, you'll lose your eyebrows. Like, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid to lose your eyebrows. It's, it's, I, I have to have these conversations. You do too. You have to have these conversations with people like it, it's okay. You're not going to have a heart attack. If you take a, uh, if you get a medication for arthritis, you know, it's, it's okay. Right. But you know, I, and, and so, yeah, hearing the list is definitely daunting, but I think I didn't, I didn't understand that chemo induced nausea and vomiting is very different than the nausea and vomiting that you get from the flu. I didn't understand that the diarrhea that you get could be grade five and not, you know, like what the diarrhea that you get with the GI bug. So I think that for me, that was, you know, like for one, it was incredibly shocking and scary to see it as a mom but it was also incredibly eye-opening to see it as a future healthcare provider because it just gave you a greater awareness and um a greater and definitely empathy but def but for for sure greater awareness and um and to be able to understand like having that perspective why people don't want to be compliant with their medications and you know because for us we just think oh nausea you know we see it on the commercial nausea vomiting worried on the package insert but i mean it was no joke and i so seeing that i realized that i even though i was i understood what the potential side effects could be i was not prepared for what came still because when <clears throat> tyler's when Tyler's nausea and vomiting hit from his chemo and we were at home, I mean, it was like uncontrollable and it was the scariest thing. Like to have a child that never grown up before just basically spit up and then all of this and you know, all of a sudden I have a, a, a baby that is like, it's almost, was almost like a seizure. He was just, you know, just uncontrollable. It was the most terrifying thing. And so I remember, you know, Billy, I called him and he was on duty and we got an escort and we raced to the hospital and so that they could hook him up to, and, you know, to an IV uh, with an anti-medic. Because you can't just give him, him, you know, you can't give him baby Pepto. It's not yeah. the same thing. And it's not like eating, you know, it's not like, oh, he ate something and it, it, it made him sick or, or something like that. To your point, the chemo, really and people that have gone through cancer and i i've seen it from the outside looking in it, it just chemo is very violent to people's bodies sometimes it just causes a lot of things so once you guys got through the hurdle of the amputation you know did did you feel like okay this is good things are progressing how did tyler we, we've not really talked about tyler how did he, as a young child, I mean, he's learning to walk. He's a toddler. Now he's got to relearn to walk with, with missing his foot. How did he cope and deal with all of it as, as, a, as a toddler and, and moving into to his pre-kindergarten years? Well, um, it was definitely a challenge at that time to keep him 
and something that, you know, fit him that was like conducive for his size. Um, it, we ended up, we had a lot of skin issues and, um, that kept him off of his leg. Uh, so that was difficult because at that age, you just want to get back on your feet and go, that's what they want to do. So, um, you know, he really wasn't, he was young enough that it didn't get him down. I mean, we definitely have went through the spectrum of, um, it, you know, issues here and there that come about. Um, but in general, I mean, Tyler has really dealt with his disabilities very well. Um, it hasn't been perfect. We've had our hard moments, but he's very determined and resilient and positive. He's very positive and he's very soulful and believes that this was part of God's purpose, uh, part of God's path for him in mm -hmm. his greater purpose. How was he when he really realized that he was a cancer survivor? Because now, you, you know, a lot of people wear that April as a badge of honor. They say, hey, I've survived this, this disease that killed other people. I survived it. And you know what? I'm proud to be. And, and for all those out there, all you cancer survivors out there, I salute you. We salute you. Hats off to you because cancer is a deadly it's a deadly disease. We, we spend billions of dollars every year trying to find a cure and we haven't found the cure yet. So my hat's off to all you cancer survivors that have walked through an incredibly difficult road to come out of the other side and, and say, yeah, I survived cancer. How was his outlook as a kid? You know, he, he knows now, and obviously the, the wisdom of maturity but as he gets to be, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, and in his preteen years, what was his outlook like then? Um, he it's definitely something he had an, he appreciated early on um, because we lost friends, you know, along the way that had been patients with us, and um, I think that was hard. Um, but he also will say, I mean, and has said for a very long time that, you know, when people ask him why he's so driven or accomplished, that it's not because, I mean, you would expect a teenage boy to be like, well, I mean, I have one leg, I have a lot to prove, but his answer is always, um, I have friends that died from what didn't kill me, and I have a reason to be here, so I, I owe it to, to them to be living my, the, the biggest possible life I can possibly live. And, um, and he means that. So. And, and obviously now he's what, 19, 20. He'll be 19 in November. So it's almost. He will be 19 in November and obviously a college freshman going to school. Yes. yes. And, uh, and yeah. Did this, did it shape him? Did the, did the cancer surviving shape what he wanted to do with his life? Because, you know, some kids that go through that, they say, okay, well, because I survived this, I'm going to do this. Like if, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize it, but a young person might say, well, my house burned as a kid, so I'm going to be a firefighter. Yeah. Because I don't, you know, I don't want somebody else to go through that. Or, 
did that change his trajectory and what he thought about becoming and where he ultimately decided that he wanted to do as a career path? Yeah, it's it's definitely always been he's always always been forward thinking about that even more than what his skills were, I think, at the time, you know. I mean, I believe you you're capable of doing anything that you want to do. And so I think I that rubbed off on him a little bit. I've always wanted um, to fly. I've always wanted to tell I've wanted to have the gift of teleportation so that I didn't have to wait in line at the airport. Well, we could fly, you know, we could travel <laughs> freely you know, or, or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, but but so what's, originally what's his... he wanted, well, originally he thought I want, you know, I want to be an oncologist so I can cure cancer. And then he realized, eh, like d deep science and medicine only like might not be my forte. So then he said, okay, well, I, maybe I could be a lawyer that, you know, helps to advocate for, you know, rights for, for either, patients or um, disabled athletes, uh, people with disabilities. Um, but in the last, so earlier, it all came together last January, he was selected to do the first men's retreat, um, spiritual men's retreat from, that uh, Bethany Hamilton held. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's the, um, the surfer that lost her arm in the shark attack. And so, she held a, an event called The Forge and Tyler was able to go to that and he really got more introduced. He got introduced to someone who, you know, he's met a lot of, um, he's met a lot of doctors. He's met a lot of doctors um, and he's, he's known a lot of people involved in sports and sports medicine, but he didn't really connect the two could merge until he met someone at that retreat that was helping them so, you know, so significantly that week that special, that was, sports medicine doctor, but more specialized in adaptive athletics. And he said, well, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, I want to be the doctor for the Paralympic team. I want to help other athletes like me that want to be driven, but that end up, you know, not they end up having to have multiple doctors communicate to try and come up with a solution. He was like, I want to be the solution. I want to know what they, what, what will help them specifically. Yeah. So, um, so that's what he's going to school to do. He's in the athletic, uh, the athletic trainer program, which gives him a lot of time on the field, and he's doing his pre-med requisites as a um, as a parallel to that program. So in April, I really believe I I believe with all my heart that one day we are going to see an amputee play a professional sport and do it well. I think because. You know, and, and, and earlier today, I, I recorded a podcast with a friend of mine that's an orthopedic surgeon here locally. And I believe that we are making such strides in technology that it's very possible that someone that's been an amputee of a foot or maybe, you know, below the, the knee amputation could play professional sports at a high level. The technology has gotten it. And it could be that Tyler is works with, that person or people that end up playing NFL football or end up playing major league baseball or, or being in the national basketball association, the NBA, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility to you. No, not at all. And I think that in the last few years, adaptive sports have gotten a little bit more recognition. I do believe that 
they're definitely not um, they're definitely not on at the recognized at the same level yet um, or appreciated or paid at the same level yet. Mm -hmm. But I will say that um, the more that people support the Paralympics, the more that they watch um, and just see that these people are doing incredible things despite incredible um, challenges, you know, so it's not that it's not, um, they're not incredible because of their challenges. They're incredible really despite their challenges, yeah. you know, and I, I'm just so in awe by that community and a lot of the people that we've really gotten to know, and it's been very humbling and just, um, really just incredible to have role models. So we're, you know, Tyler's very involved in the Challenged Athletes Foundation, he was their Rising Star Award winner last year, along with his friend Liv, and um, is, uh, you know, always, always connected to his friends through Challenge Athletes Foundation and, and helps them with fundraisers or any, any opportunity that he can to be an advocate, um, because it's very, it's, it's super important for kids to have role models like yep. that. It, it really is. It really is. Tell me about the Drifted Drum. I've got to ask about that in the, in the last few minutes that we have on the podcast. Tell me about it. You smiled. You're like, oh, I've been waiting for, you know, I've been asking you all these questions about other things. But tell me about the Drifted Drum. So the Drifted Drum um, is our business of encouragement. So Drifted means. What about that? that? I mean, my goodness, you know, you, you know, what about that? The intentional encourager podcast, you go, what's our business about encouraging? Combined too, you know, the, with the podcast. So what about that? Yes. We're, we're, we're on the same path, you and I. So we, we started this company because, um, you know, I was in the process of publishing my book and I really want, you know, you kind of get to this point where you say, okay, well, what is this going to become? Is this just a book that's going to, you know, I'm going to put it out there and hopefully people will gain something for it. And it might just be the only thing that I, that I do in regards to this and that's okay. But you know, what, what do we want it to become? So I, I had Tyler sit down with me and I said, I'm sharing this story. And I, not only do I want your buy-in, I also had to have that conversation with my husband too, but <laughs> because a lot of it is, is definitely, um, you know, I'm very transparent. In my I don't book. think you had to push real hard. Like if we're doing, if, if it was my wife going, yeah, we're sharing this story. I'd be like, okay, tell me what I got to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. He, he was, he was definitely, he was supportive, which I was kind of surprised because I'm definitely very honest in my book, but, but he was good. He was good with it. Um, and, but Tyler, you know, I said, I'm sharing a lot of your story and I'm putting this book out there. Like we have an opportunity to determine, is this just a book or, 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 or is this more and how involved do you want to be? And he was like, well, what is the, you know, what is our main purpose of, of, of putting our story out there? And we were like, both agreed that it was to give other people hope in, in a difficult situation. And so he said, well, I said, how would you do that outside from the, the speaking engagements that you do outside from, you know, just really counseling your friends or, you know, whatever that looks like, what, you know, like, what would you do to encourage? And he said, well, you know, I really, I want to have my own 
apparel. Like I want to display images that I feel like are peaceful or like, you know, that are kind of like a component of me that allow people to ask more questions. Like, why are you, why you are, why do you like what you like and allow me to share my story. So, and then we both agreed that events were going to be an important component. So we came up with the drifted drum model, um, which has an apparel component, kind of a gift, like a gift component and um, the events and the publishing. And so my thought is that I will, like my book was the first, but I'm helping um, another couple of authors that are going to be drifted drum authors that are publishing with me um, to share their story about how they turn their purpose into pain as well. So drifted means um, ended up in a place by external forces. You didn't really plan to go there, you're drifted there. And then drum is a vessel that can be emptied and filled over and over again. And I feel like that really sums us up really well. That's awesome. In the last couple minutes that we've got, I want you to share with the audience your biggest piece of intentional encouragement, April, because again, we've told your story and they can, they can read about it in your book, No Mess, No Message. And but, but you know, in, in this format, somebody may be driving in the car. They may be going for a run. They may be, you know, cooking dinner or something like that. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement to folks out there? So I, I will share that um, two, two things, even when I felt like I wasn't very religious or my relationship wasn't strong in God, there are two things that really brought me hope in everything that we went through. And one is the verse, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, that says that God's plan is better than my plan. And I am a planner. And so when things you don't, don't go say. how I You don't say, right? <laughs> yes, I, I am admittedly a planner. And uh, when things don't go my way, they don't go how I plan you know, it's so easy for me to get frustrated or overwhelmed unless I really cling to that and understand that I might not understand the situation that I'm facing right now, but God knows. And he sees that and it, and it, it could potentially be leading to something else. And I, I just have to, one, learn as much as I can in the situation that I'm, I'm facing, whether it's learn about me, how I respond to things, how to trust God more, learn about you know, like what's wrong in my life that might need to be fixed. Um, and the second, um, the second thing that I really gravitate toward is that God's word says that he will even use things meant for our harm for our good. And so to me, those two are put together are almost everything that I need to find my grounding again. And, um, and so I, I just really want someone to to know that if they're feeling overwhelmed, you know, that especially if you even have just a, a sliver of belief that God's word is true, then, um, then stand your ground on that because there, if you get a new day, you get a new chance. And so if you trust him to allow those two things to come to fruition, then even if the situation is difficult right now, it potentially could be just a painful part of the process that becomes your path to success. That is so good. What a, what a perfect way to end it. Find her on LinkedIn at April Jones. You have to, 
look April Jones and she's like full of farm D thing. Cause it's, you know, it's a professional network and you know, everything like that. Um, they can also go to the drifted drum.com. Have I got that right? Yeah. The easiest way to connect to me for sure is to go to the drifted drum.com. It has a link to all my media appearances. There's a contact us at the bottom. The email goes directly to my business account. Um, I have uh, an Instagram, a TikTok, a <laughs> Facebook. I have her cell phone number, but you're not I getting am. it. You're not getting it. I have, you know, but I know how to get a hold of you, but you, you're not getting that. But yeah, Instagram, <laughs> TikTok. I'll, I can't get into TikTok, April. I'm too old for TikTok. I just, you know. <laughs> there's like, there's hashtags for over 30, over 40. It's for everyone. Pushing so. 50. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag pushing 50. See, like yeah. you just need to create your, your own trend. I'm going to encourage myself just to kind of stay right here and, and uh, not get, but no, it's, this has been so good. I am. One, thank you for being so transparent and sharing your story. And two, thank you for, for just helping others and, and encouragement. And I've said this to people before, and you know this, is that the, the and I, I use business in air quotes, the business of encouragement, you give a lot more encouragement than you take in. And, and so thank you for, for taking that to the next level. And I, I wish you all the best. And thank you for joining me on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing our story. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intentional.